Welcome to the July edition of the Xcoders Community Podcast. I'm Jared Sorge. And I'm Liz Martley. And we've got a lot of cool stuff to talk about today. Uh, first, we want to go through the July schedule for Xcoders, uh, starting with NS Coder Night, which I know has been instrumental to uh, both Liz and me. Um, and that's every Tuesday night at the Wayward Coffee House in the Roosevelt District in Seattle. We have our West Side meeting at Zulily on the 11th at 6.30 p.m. We've got two talks lined up, Functional Networking by Alan Usher and Building a 3D Renderer in Swift by Drew Ingebretson. And Drew's going to join us later on in the show. And then we have July 25th on the east side of Seattle in Redmond at ThinkSpace. And Liz, you, you've talked to ThinkSpace, right? Yeah, I've been there just a month or two ago. It's a great space to have a much more conversational talk. Um, it's in more like a conference room, and so it's easy to interact with the audience That's while cool. you're talking. Yeah, it's a it's a different vibe than we have at Zuli because Zuli is a lot more presentation style where the speaker is talking to the audience. So we have some interaction, but but not a, not a ton. So the east side sounds like it's a lot more collaborative, which is super cool. So it's it's July. We're about a month removed now, uh, as we record from WWC. What do you think? There was a there was a lot happening. Wow, that was a lot. Um, I thought we were just about done with the main uh, presentation Monday, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, by the way, Swift by the UI, way, combine." It they wasn't didn't even talk about combine. One more thing. But Combine never made the keynote. That was afterwards, too. Oh, yeah, it was. It was everybody gets the betas and they say, oh, wait, Apple has this new functional library. What's this about? Yeah, that's right. They presented that in, I think, Monday afternoon's State of the Union. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, yeah that was shocking. And they had spent, like, all the, all the buildup was around what Marzipan was going to be in these iOS apps on on the Mac and that was a five minute chunk and then they moved on and everyone's like, wait a minute, what else is happening here? Right. Aside from the thousand dollar monitor stand. Um, yeah. And the cheese grater on wheels. Right. That was, that's going to be interesting. I wonder how much the wheels are going to cost. <laughs> I noticed they didn't say no, no. And they only had the monitor stand price up on screen for, I think it was 56 frames of the video someone counted. So it was like under a second and then it was gone. Clearly some people have a lot more time to spend on this stuff than <laughs> I do. I haven't even started looking into Swift UI or combine seriously. Yeah, I haven't either. Uh, have you done anything with reactive programming? Like uh, yeah, my or... current team uses some of the third party frameworks. RX Swift, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's we've started adopting. Stuff. We've started adopting that at Lyft pretty heavily, and I can't get my hand around it yet. I'm, I'm kind of still in uh, like get off my lawn kind of territory with how stuff feels, and uh, it's it's been really hard for me to to embrace. But I know that's kind of where we're going, so I have to figure it out. Yeah, I'm hopeful that kind of like learning a second programming language helps you start abstracting the principles and um, 
getting more comfortable even in your first programming language that mm -hmm. trying a second reactive functional programming thing mm -hmm. in other words combine will actually help me get more comfortable with the overall paradigm we'll see yeah i know it'd be, it'll be interesting to see what they do for debugging because rx swift at least is very much closure heavy and closures and debugging it becomes a real nightmare uh, if you're trying to get a stack trace because you don't really have a proper stack right it's it's really weird <laughs> uh, i i'm feeling crusty that debugging is hard i would love to come back to this topic in a few months when after we've had some time with it platform is released and we've both gotten to play with it some and see where we're at yeah yeah i haven't been able to really uh hunker down with anything yet but i think one of the feelings that i'm having out of this this year's wwc is um some disappointment is both the wrong word and the right word um because things like swift ui and combine and um I think there was one other thing in there, but mainly mainly with Swift UI is like at Lyft, which is my day job, our minimum iOS version is now iOS 11. We just dropped 10. Uh, and so I, we won't be able to use this stuff in our code base unless we want to duplicate a lot of code, like all of our views for the next couple of years, probably. So. Yeah. On my team, I've been thinking about what was announced last year that we can now start adopting because it requires iOS 12 and mm. we're maybe close to ready to drop support for iOS 11. And oh, that's cool. I think that um, for a lot of production, um, large companies, that may be more the way to think about things is the 2019 announcements are previews of what we'll get to work on in 2020. <laughs> yeah, I think we were talking about that at Xcoders last month is have the summer talks next year recap stuff that was announced this year as if it was new <laughs> because that's when we actually get to start using it in our code. That sounds fun. <laughs> I, I might be totally up for that. Yeah, an introduction um... to Combine in <laughs> July of 2020. <laughs> and I've seen I've seen people also say say things like, "Well, I'm going to give it a year," but giving it a year means you're still starting on the version that's that maybe has the bugs. Like they're saying they want to give it a year because they want Apple to iron out all the kinks before they start using it. So I'd be putting them in the iOS 14 land, which puts them out another extra year. Um, I don't know if that actually will work or not. Um, but yeah, and I think I think there is an interesting argument to be drawn going and just straight dropping iOS 11 altogether because iOS 12 doesn't cut any devices off. iOS, going from 10 to 11, we dropped, uh, that was when we had the 32-bit transition, right? So we dropped all of our iPhone 5 kind of uh, devices Right. Going 11 I remember to 12. that being kind of a panic 
for app camp for girls. Oh yeah. That year we were like, we realized with kind of short notice that some of our iPod touches just had to be retired. There was no way they could keep moving forward with the released version of Xcode. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I've been thinking about too is we have some really cool new things as developers like Swift UI and I'm tempted to go and rewrite. I have a side app called Scorebook that I've been working on a big update for and I've kind of want to scrap all of the UI and rebuild it all in Swift UI. And the more I think about that, it sounds like a really fun project and I really like all the lower level like developery tooling automation kinds of things, but any of my users, and granted, I don't have a lot of them, but my users don't really care about that. So what are the things that Apple's bringing out that my users might care about, like dark mode, or would they want an iPad app, uh, or an iPad app moved to the Mac and have Scorebook on the Mac? Yeah. Things like that. I, what you just said about, I want to rewrite everything because it sounds fun to me, but it's not going to help it's not going to be visible to my users at all. Mm -hmm. That sounds exactly like what I heard from people about Swift when it was announced. Mm -hmm. And there's probably been other generations of technology like that, maybe automatic reference counting. And I, I don't think Apple is just putting these out to give us new shinies just for fun, I I hope that in the long term these do indirectly help our users. That the type safety of Swift, the uh, memory management of our reference counting, the benefits of Swift UI that I haven't quite figured out yet, other than <laughs> Ushiny, will help us build more robust applications more quickly, spend less time debugging them, spend less time chasing crashes and more time crafting the user experiences we want mm -hmm. to share with the world. Yeah, absolutely. But you think there are some things that you can jump on now to give your users benefit? I think I think so. Um, I think I've seen some really cool um, demos of what you can do with with things like Swift UI, and there are there are parts of my app that I've uh, wanted to redo the interfaces for, and all that stuff I'll probably do in Swift UI. So like the approach that a lot of places take, uh, like you were saying with Swift adoption, is well, I'm not going to necessarily rewrite the entire thing right now, but new stuff will be done in Swift. And that's kind of the approach I've taken in Scorebook, where I built it all in Objective-C in 2014, but I've been adding Swift pieces here and there, and most new stuff I've been writing has been in Swift. Um, and so for new UI, I'll probably do that all in Swift UI just to see what it's like and to hopefully provide a better experience uh, for myself, because I can get it done faster with a tighter, tighter feedback loop. Have you watched any of the Swift UI videos or, yeah. or anything? Yeah, that that um, split screen. Oh man, I want that so badly. Code on one side and the um, preview of the app on the other side. It looks a lot like iPad Playgrounds to me, which makes me. It kind of does, yeah. 
just how like just how far are we from let's say Xcode for iPad that only can handle Swift and Swift UI. No interface or no like classic UI kit um, mm. interfaces, no Objective C, just Swift and Swift UI, but you could build your whole app on an iPad and run it on an iPad in the same way that Mac developers can build their whole app on a Mac and run it on a Mac. I'm going to say we're two years away, but that's just an out-of-the-air kind of guess. It's nice to dream. Yeah. I think it's coming, though. I think the day is coming, but there's still so much Objective-C that's being leaned on. Uh, what what Swift UI especially, I think, is is a signal to UI kit developers and app kit developers that their existing view skills have been deprecated and this is the way forward. That's kind of kind of the assumption I'm going on anyways. So what do you think of Apple having announced Catalyst at the same time as Swift UI? Do those two work together or should people be picking one or the other to update their apps? I don't know what to make of Catalyst and Swift UI being announced at the same time. I don't know that I think Apple did that primarily because last year they said they were going to give us what is now called Catalyst. Like they said that in the keynote that the developer tools will be coming next year. And so they had to do something and they gave us a lot. Like you can fully use the power of AppKit, albeit in a separate uh, bundle, but you can totally call in AppKit any way you want to and add, I believe you can add scripting libraries and all the things that make a Mac app a great Mac app. And that's what I want to do and explore with Scorebook. I don't know if I start putting Swift UI in the iPad context how that translates through Catalyst, or if I should uh, do just like a Catalyst, uh, a Swift UI layer, and have the Mac pieces interact with that directly. Does that make sense? I understand what you're saying. I sure don't know the right answer either. Yeah. And I think that's the normal state of being for the summer for. Apple adjacent developers, Apple yeah. throws a whole bunch of new stuff on us and we kind of go, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So if anyone out there is listening and a little worried that they feel a little lost and confused, we all do. It's okay. <laughs> and get in touch. We'd love to talk to you. <laughs> totally. Show up to our meetups or just um, get in touch. Yeah. Out of... Dub Dub, we had some pretty great talks on the west side. Uh, we did lightning talks, um, recapping topics from the conference, and we had seven—I think it was seven, seven talks, six or seven talks. Um, what stood out? It was six. Okay. Did anything in particular stand out to you about that night? Uh, well, I actually really appreciate your talk, Jared. Um, not just because you're my co-host here and I want to uh, give you that appreciation, but 
I think the Swift Package Manager is really interesting for mm -hmm. my team because we use a lot of CocoaPods and there's some frustration and confusion with them. And so I was really hoping that you would say, look, Swift Package Manager is the future. You can just swap your CocoaPods out for packages and everything is great. And <laughs> if we you gave made a much it so. more level-headed talk about the limitations and um, I found it really informative. Cool. Yeah, that, I've been using Swift Package Manager stuff for server-side projects for about a year now, and it's been really great. Um, and the Xcode integration, I think, is is going to be really great, but it's not quite there yet. And actually, uh, I had a talk with, uh, or a, a chat after my talk with Nat Irons, who does a lot of CI and infrastructure work. And he um, he asked about where the the dependencies get checked into and xcode puts those in derived data which is not part of a repository so historically in CocoaPods, you would check in your current versions of those pods and those are part of your repository but you can't do that in xcode with at least the current implementation so that's a a big deal for for things like continuous integration which i hadn't even considered because i don't I don't use CI that much on my own. I'd like to, but I'm not there yet. Yeah, CI is often a little bit of overkill for an independent developer. Yeah. One more thing to maintain. The other talk I really appreciated was Mona's talk, which was a little bit about Swift UI, but also just about the adventure that is going to WWDC for the first time um, and about the whole experience. And I thought that was great that she um, came and gave her first talk ever. Yeah, to... that was really cool. Yeah, I enjoy so much that we are a space where people can come give their first talk and we, we aren't too scary. Um, no, Xcoders has been about with talks. Xcoders has always been uh, about being supportive of the people giving talks. Like that's something we've openly striven for is um, being a comfortable place for you to give your first talk or your fiftieth talk. And uh, everyone in the the audience is um, there to support the speaker and to learn from them, which is really really cool. Um, and so part of what stood out to me is we had a lot of first time speakers. I think we had three of our talkers were first timers and that was really cool. Uh, and it turns out that two of them, uh, Mona and Allison had been part of the university of Washington program. Liz, when we were involved, you with doing TA and me, uh, I taught three weeks of the advanced course in a really crazy season of life. So it's, it's fun to have it kind of come full circle and see the people who we've invested in go get up and do really cool things. Um, I took stuff from all of the talks. Like there's stuff from Mona with Swift UI, uh, Allison's demo of the machine learning stuff, which I've not paid any attention to. That looked really cool. I could I could see wanting to play with training my own model on device and figuring things out. That looks really cool. 
Um, and then Kim's, Kim Alberg gave a, a talk about uh, adding pencil kit support to your app. And that was really cool. And with Scorebook, uh, some of the feedback that I've gotten is that people still like to write with pen and paper. So I'm like, well, what if I put, I've, I've got an iPad app coming now. What if I add pencil support so you can actually still write out your scores on your iPad? That could be cool. Yeah, I haven't played a lot of games with my family over the years. It's always, okay, somebody find a scrap of paper and a mm -hmm. pen and... I, I like to feel less like I'm in the digital world when I'm playing a table game. Mm -hmm. So I think a pencil and an iPad might do that. I'll be really curious to see what you come up with. Me too. <laughs> I have not started designing any of it, um, but it, it'll be interesting. It'll be fun. Yeah, it really was a great night of talks. And if you missed out, we... Uh, went ahead and got all those videos posted already so you can check them out um, but of course we'd far rather have you come join us in person if you can for sure yeah tim eckel uh, gets our videos up and he did kind of a heroic effort to get things out quickly so many many props to him for getting that done Joining us now is Drew Ingebretson, and Drew's going to be giving a talk on Thursday called Building a 3D Renderer in Swift. Thanks for coming on, Drew. Hi, glad to be here, Jared. Thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. So uh, why did you choose the topic that you're going to be talking about? You know, that is a great question. Um, so my talk is going to be a little unique. Um, it's, we're basically going to be going through three different approaches for how you can build a 3D rendering engine. And just to kind of explain what that means, and then I can explain why I chose the topic I did. So what I mean is we're going to be, we're going to be building an application to actually show 3D graphics. And we're not going to be using Metal, we're not going to be using OpenGL, we're not going to be using SceneKit or Unity 3D or any kind of build-in, but we're actually going to, going to be from the scratch building our own 3D rendering engine. Um, it's all running on the CPU. It's not necessarily performant or fast, but it works. <laughs> Very cool. So, yeah, so why did I choose this topic? You know, it's, it's a topic which, if you look kind of online on the 3D graphics uh, tutorials out there, it's something which isn't very well discussed. Um, so for all, from a young age, I've always loved 3D graphics. I've been really interested. I remember the first time I played, you know, Wolfenstein 3D on my PC back mm -hmm. in the day when I was in elementary school. And then I remember when Toy Story came out and my mind being blown. And then kind of this move to kind of these real-time 3 graphics. And I was always curious, like, you know, how does this work? Why is it that, you know, you can get all these realistic lighting in Toy Story, but not, you know, my, my favorite video games? And so I kind of set out to kind of try to learn this. And I found that really a lot of this material isn't available online. It's very easy to find tutorials online of how OpenGL works. Sorry, of how to build an app in OpenGL, but it's not very easy to find a tutorial explaining how OpenGL actually does its thing. And to really get all this knowledge, you have to go into textbooks. And it's really easy to kind of get lost in a sea of math and equations. And, uh, and that's what's interesting, but it's not very approachable. And so I, so I want to set out and kind of make, I kind of wanted to build a presentation and a source project that, that made a lot of this, uh, this knowledge, which powers these 3D engines, um, approachable, accept, acceptable, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll be interesting and entertaining to people. <laughs> that does sound really cool. Uh, speaking as one who struggles with textbooks, 
uh, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing things uh, be demystified a little bit. That's that's something that I think makes things more approachable, right? Is when you learn how something actually works, the magic kind of falls away, and you feel kind of like you're empowered that you could build something yourself, and that's that's really cool. Yeah, and so just to uh, just to um, ramp up the talk a little, I'll just let, we'll be going through three different rendering engines. We'll be building a what we call scanline based rasterizer. Um, we'll then be rendering what we call a path uh, path tracing based ray tracer. And then just for fun, if we have time, we'll also be building a 2D Raycaster engine. So, and um, we'll be going through all the code. Uh, if people are interested, you can download the, the sample code on my GitHub beforehand. It's at Drew Ying's, sorry, github.com slash Drew Ying. And uh, yeah, cool. be we'll, hopefully we'll link to that in the show notes for sure. And th- those, are, those are some really cool words that sound like fun. <laughs> hopefully hopefully they're fun yeah I, um i gave this i gave i used to give this talk a few years ago back when i lived in salt lake city and um you know I, i've had to tweak it quite I've, I've tweaked it here and there trying mm-hmm. to you know make it as uh, as exciting and interesting as i can so that's really yeah. cool so how do you get uh hooked up with xcoders yeah you know like uh kind of randomly so i'm new to the seattle area i've only been in i you know like probably 80% of the Death Force up here, I'm uh, from out of town. Um, I'm originally from Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing about Salt Lake City is Salt Lake City has a very, very active uh, and thriving iOS community. Um, and I you know, I, I just really, really have enjoyed that community. And so when I came up here, I was really excited to hear about Xcoders and hear that that community also existed up here. So I'm new to the community. Um, part of it is uh, I didn't know about it, and the other part of it is... Me and my wife have had a kid, and life happens, and things get busy. Um, and I know how that goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's only now the whirlwind of a family and is dying down to the point where I can actually get involved in the community again. Um, yeah. So I'm new to the community, but I'm super involved. How I actually got hooked up with you kind of randomly. One of my friends, for, I was actually at WWDC, and one of my, I was literally walking through the hotel lobby, and uh, um, one of my one of my buddies was chatting with you, Jared, yeah. and called me over and. We ended up sitting down, having a great conversation, and you invited me and told me about it, and I got excited, and uh, you know, here we are. <laughs> That's awesome. It's really cool when uh, stuff like that kind of just happens. It's, yeah, absolutely uh, organically, and I'm I'm really I'm, you know, I've only been able to go to one meeting, of, um, but I'm just really impressed with kind of. Uh, I was really I, I I've been really impressed so far with. It seems like the community is very very strong, and it seems like um, very close knit, and so I'm really excited to be a, to be a part of it. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's kind of been my biggest takeaway of like, even just learning programming over the last seven or so years is like the community here is amazing. And that's kind of been the best part of it really is getting to meet and, and get to know all these people. Um, and so we're, we're really excited to have you out and, and join Xcoders. Awesome. Excited to be here, man. Yeah. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit a little bit about yourself? Uh, what do you do for your day job? You said you moved out here from Salt Lake City and you got a family. Yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm originally from Salt Lake City. Um, I've been, oh geez, I've been doing software development for about, it honestly depends on how you want to count. I, my first full-time software engineering job was in 2012. So what would that be, about six and a half years? Yeah, six and a half, seven years. It'll be seven years in October. So okay. seven years in October. Um I currently work for HBO. Um, if you've ever used the HBO Now or HBO Go streaming apps, you are likely using code that I've written. Um, 
I've been at HBO for about three years. It's a great company. Absolutely loved it. Um, I, uh, I have, I kind of took a non-traditional route into software engineering. Um, I don't know if it's fair to be, say I'm self-taught or not. I, I, you know, did the fake it till you make it thing where I pre, I got my first software engineering job by pretending like I had software engineering skills when I didn't. <laughs> I, uh, I had done a, I had, I, I had taken a single class in college, a single object oriented programming class in college. And I did a couple of tutorials and somehow that made me think that I was a software engineer. And so I pretended to be one and got hired by a, by a startup, a small 11 person startup. And I think looking back at, it, I think they knew just how, uh, not how not knowing anything about software engineering actually was, but they were kind <laughs> enough to give me a, to take a chance on me and give me a paycheck to teach myself. Um, so I was kind of self-taught. Um, I left that company for two years and got another software engineering job. And I found that, uh, I worked with all these amazing engineers, um, just these really smart people. It was actually really intimidating. I had, mm-hmm. I was self-taught. I'd only been doing it for, you know, two, two, three years at that point. And I was just working with all these people who were just running circles with me and, around me in terms of their productivity and their knowledge. And I got it in my head that the reason why they were doing so well is because they all had computer science degrees, whereas my my uh, college degree was based in economics. Um, and so I made the decision that I was gonna, I would go back, you know, I've kind of, with imposter syndrome being what imposter syndrome is, I decided that the only way to ever be a quote-unquote true engineer was to go back and uh, get a degree, which I did. I went back and I took a oh, wow. computer X, and then I went back and got a master's degree in computer science. That's now, amazing. I, well, yeah. Well, I mean, and, you know, I will say that now I realize that the reason why all these people could run circles around me is because they had been doing this for 10 years, not because they had the mm-hmm. <laughs> degrees. Um, yeah. But, um, and, you know, and so I don't, and so just, you know, I don't know if necessarily the degree has necessarily helped me in terms of being a better engineer, though it has helped me in just, you know, finding really interesting things. So I did go back, I got a master's degree in computer science. Um, and then I kind of bounced around from various startup, uh, the, tech scene in Salt Lake City is a lot smaller than it is in Seattle and uh, like with most small tech uh, scenes it's the backbone of it is small startups that you know very few people have heard of they're very small struggling trying to find their way you don't get much many big tech companies and I kind of feel like that you know if I really wanted to truly grow a software career the best place to do it would be to move to Seattle or to the Bay Area Um, we have family in Seattle so we decided to come up here which is you know what brought me up here and that's why I'm at HBO that's very cool yeah that Going, the part that's really impressive to me is going back to school and getting your extra degrees. I I would consider myself self-taught as well for the most part. I mean, nothing happens in a vacuum, right? Um, but I I couldn't go back and get more degrees. I, <laughs> that that uh, wouldn't yeah. work for me. <laughs> you know, I was lucky that I did it in the time I did with before me and my wife had children. Kids definitely changed that. That is a complicating a factor for sure. Um, and it was really nice. And it was really nice too. I was able to do a prof- it was, I mean, the degree I got was a professional degree in the sense it was it was tailored for working professionals. So, I would go to uh, I would work you know for forty hours during the day, and then I would literally go to classes from about six p.m. to nine thirty p.m. Um, mm-hmm. three days three days a week, and then you know I would work with for my research projects. I would then work with my professors on the weekends to you know do the to kind of fulfill the research side of things. And I, I had to do prereqs first. I had to do, I had to do about four or five classes of, uh, of prereqs just at a community college before they would even let me apply. Um, hmm. But I was able to get, I was able to get through it. Um, and I'm looking back at it, you know, now that I have a family, I could never do it now myself. Um, 
But when it's you know, you, but when it's you and your wife, um, and you know they're it's a little like, easier. With, yeah, it's it's much it's much much easier. And you know, I will say I will say that like that I love my degree. The classes I took were fascinating. Um, the research I did was super interesting. I've learned many 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 things, which will never help me in my day job. But still, I learned many 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 things. Um, I don't regret my degree in any way, shape, or form, but I, I do want to be very clear. I don't think the fact that I went back and got a degree has in any way made me a better engineer, or even necessarily has helped me. Um, I, I, you know, still doing iOS development. Um, you found that just having the experience in your day-to-day and being around smarter people, kind of like the, the rising tide lifts all boats thinking yeah. of, the, of being around smart people who really like, and like what they're doing and, and know it really well has helped you become a better engineer or just experience in general. I yeah. mean, there's a big difference between how much, you know, as an engineer at two years and how much, you know, at six years and how much I'll know at 12 years. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, the a degree will never replace that experience. I, I don't think my degree is what got me my job at any tech company I've ever worked at. Um, and I, I'm, you know, all the, re, you know, all my research that I did. And so my two main areas of, re, of, my research was in machine learning and <coughs> graphics, um, and you know I've yet to I've I, did, I I've yet to really do anything with my uh, with my research in graphics or machine learning <laughs> just because those fields are so big part of it is because those fil- fields are so competitive, um, and you know it's it's a classic software problem where where no one wants to hire juniors, everyone wants to hire seniors. Yep. You know, even when it comes to a field as hot and happening as machine learning, if you know. You have a degree where you've done some research in machine learning, but you actually don't have any job experience in machine learning. Um, no one's going to look at you. And I, and you know, the the problem I ran into is I graduated with my degree with about four four or five years of iOS experience and zero years of any other experience. And so obviously it was easier to continue the iOS path, which uh, which I have. Awesome. Well, we're really looking forward to your talk, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for your time, Jared. I look forward to seeing you guys. Um, if anyone wants to get, uh, I will say this one about the talk. It's one which I think is a lot better if you can follow along with the code. So feel free to download the sample project on my GitHub, and uh, hopefully we'll see people uh, at this next upcoming Xcoders meeting. Great. How can people find you on the internet, Drew? Uh, so my monk here, almost everywhere we go, is going to be Drew Ying. So Drew, D-R-E-W, and then Ying as in the Ying and the Yang. Um, so in GitHub, I'll be Drew Ying. On Twitter, I'll be Drew Ying. If you Google Drew Ying and you find something somewhere, someone somewhere <laughs> named Drew Ying, it is probably, probably going to be me. Yeah. So cool. My, and we'll put uh, yeah. We'll put links in the show notes for people to find you. Perfect. Thanks so much. Thank you.